Greetings from Longtime No See the Podcast. Every week we'll be inviting two blindfolded comedians to answer a series of questions about their careers, lives, and opinions. Now, let's remove those blindfolds and start the show. Hi! What would your opening line with your celebrity crush be? Loved you in Harry Potter. <laughs> Worst date you've been on. A man bit my neck mole off once. You did what? A man bit my neck mole off. Oh my god, Jack almost fell off his chair. Be sure to follow and subscribe to the podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's easy to hear your favorite artist on WFPK from wherever you are. Listen on your smart speaker, live stream from our website at WFPK.org from Louisville Public Media. We had a full pandemic between then and now. So actually, it's really 20 years ago in pandemic years. Consequence Podcast Network. Hey, welcome to another edition of Kyle Meredith with It's the Interview Series presented by WFPK at WFPK.org Consequence and the Consequence Podcast Network. Thanks, as always, for making your way here and checking out the episode. You know what to do. You like what you see, what you hear. Uh, please do hit that subscribe button. I put out three new interviews every single week, so it's a great way to keep up with all of your favorite artists. And you can do so at all the usual spots like iTunes and Apple Podcasts. It's Spotify, Podchaser, NPR, YouTube for the video versions, anywhere you get your podcasts from. Subscribe to Kyle Meredith with. That's me. I'm Kyle Meredith today talking with uh, with one of my all-time favorites, Cheryl Crow. She's been on the series many times. I am so happy and honored to have her here every single time, and especially this time as we talk about the documentary called Cheryl. It's a documentary based on her life and career. And she's going to tell us why it was finally time to tell the story. Uh, the shelved album that came before her debut that sounded too much like Sting, she says. Uh, wanting to reproduce 1996's uh, Love is a Good Thing. We're also going to talk in depth about uh, Come On, Come On that came out 20 years ago this year in 2002. It was a bright album recorded, as she says, as the documentary hits on uh, a dark period in her life. Uh, how the song You're an Original off that album is a bit of a bitter song about the pop scene of that era as well. We're also going to get into her later career that wasn't really represented in the film. Uh, hear what the narrative of that part of her life is, uh, as well as the new songs that are included on the soundtrack. Uh, one of them features Mick Jagger of the Rolling Stones and her plans to do a storyteller-style solo show run next year. So let's do this discussing the documentary Cheryl. It's Kyle Meredith with Cheryl Crow. Hi! Wow, what a nice intro. Oh, I could just lay it on too. That was the that was the <laughs> condensed, easy version right there. Uh, it's so great to talk to you again. I, I was thinking just recently that you pro I probably had you on my little series here almost more than any of the artists. I think last year was the only uh, year that we haven't had an interview in like uh, since we started doing these. Like, uh, however many years. I was so busy ago. last year, Kyle. I couldn't have even squeezed you. Right. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> I mean, honestly, the last two years have felt like a giant like just smudge mark you know it's I, I can't even put it all together it seems so weird but we did wind up going back to work a little bit in the fall and I started to feel like a normal person again so 
It's good to hear. Well, we know that you've been busy too, uh, not just with music, but of course, with the subject at hand, this fantastic documentary that's just come out called Cheryl, which I think we just uh, instantly devoured over here, me and my wife watching this thing. And it's great. It's great for you to tell the story, the whole story, uh, uh, as, as you've, um, I, I, don't want, I wouldn't want to say dodged over the years, you've been telling your story at least, you know, through the years, but but what made this the time, as that question goes, to finally put it kind of encapsulated like this? My, my manager and Van Toffler, who Van I've known for years, um, probably as long as Scooter, um, had interest from Showtime to produce a, a documentary. And I love documentaries. I just didn't see myself doing one because I felt like, well, I got a lot of years ahead of me. You know, I'm not on my way out, I hope. Um, and that's kind of what I always thought about documentaries. Um, but, you know, kind of once I settled in with the idea, um, there are lots of, um, I mean, there's a, a, a world of living there that I've never told um, anyone that the only people that have been around for, for the whole thing have been my managers and, um, and my family and, and, you know, friends who've been there for the whole time. And it just felt like it was, it, it was a story worth telling, you know, um, I think the things that I have gone through that have been challenges are not unlike what a lot of women have gone through, um, particularly in the music business, um, and maybe are still going through, but it's a little bit different now that we've created a, a, um, a safe place for women to, you know, to speak their, their truth, but also, you know, getting older in the business and, um, and even talking about some of the, you know, the challenges I've had with having real, real low lows and real high highs, however you want to define that depression, manic depression, what, however, you know, you define the mental illness aspect. And um, I, I guess I have felt like for me at this stage, I love my life. I love making music and to, to paint a picture of the person as opposed to the well-known music, um, you know, star it just seemed maybe it was a good time to do it. That, that's got to be an interesting too, though. I mean, because there's so much story to tell, it's your life. It's, yeah. it's all of your life too. Like, is there a choice when you have to figure out what the narrative is? Because I, I, I'm only thinking in comparison, like you can do a documentary, like, you know, that just dives into the album and is a complete album, you know, album by album thing. And then mm -hmm. you've got the personal life story. Like, is there a point where you have to say, this is, this is the story I want to tell this, this version? Yeah. I mean, I, one of the things when, when they approached me about doing this, I was just like, look, I just don't want to do like a, a recap of awards and big performances. And um, yeah, I just wasn't interested in doing, um, you know, an EPK basically. I was more interested in telling the story about a person and why a person would ever want to get into Put, lifting their voice into the fray you know there are a lot of great musicians out there and a lot of great songwriters and a lot of amazing singers that don't ever make it as far as I've made it and there you know there's something along the way that makes you keep keeping on and I guess that was sort of what the exploration was the other thing for me was that I had a great director that um, Scooter and I chose in Amy Scott who had done the Howl um, Ashby documentary and I loved it I felt like her artistic choices are really smart and I felt safe in having her and her crew basically um, 
in going through, you know, years and years and years of footage and interviews and, and life stuff of them sort of deciding what this, the story to be told should be. And I gave up some of the creative freedom in that. And I, I do feel good about it. I mean, there's there's probably seven or eight other documentaries on the cutting room, cutting room floor. There are things I wish would have been in it, but at the end of the day, you know, you, you make a documentary that's two hours long and people lose interest. So they were strict about, you know, right at 1.30 um, or, you know, right at 90 minutes or 98 minutes or whatever. And, um, and I, I feel good about it, you know. But I don't sit around and watch it either. You know, I watched it like the first time they sent it to me. I made a couple of things that I was like, I wish this was in it. It couldn't happen. And then I watched it at South by Southwest. And then I was like, okay. You know, it's like taking your clothes off or something. It's like, oh, can I put my clothes back on now? I mean, the Beatles got away with nine nine hours on one album documentary right there. So it's, you know. Yes, <laughs> they were the Beatles. The fact that you would even put me in the same sentence with the Beatles is, I mean, I think that's a wrap. Thanks, Kyle. It's been great talking with you. <laughs> you, know, you, know, you know what the Beatles didn't have? Uh, and I thought I knew a lot about your career. Um, the Beatles didn't have cop rock. I'll say that. So it's. <laughs> they did not have cop rock. And I think that was their shortcoming. I mean, that, that was, was really, I think, where they, I don't know, they didn't measure quite as highly as I did on the barometer <laughs> of achievements. <laughs> Seriously, that was such a fun moment because I didn't, I did I, I know about Cop Rock. I remember Cop Rock. Um, it's but, shocking that that show isn't still on. I mean, shocking. it's such a great idea, a musical detective show. You know, there's always reboots. It's never too late. You yes. Executive produce this, Cheryl. Come on. It's a, it was Stephen Bochco. I mean, for crying out loud. It's like, <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, I think he was smoking some serious weed when he came up with that idea. And all the executives went, that's a great idea. Let's do it. Let's green light this thing. Hey, Stephen thinks it's a great idea. Let's do it. <laughs> that was fun. You do have those moments in there. But like you said, I, I know there was lots that, that you couldn't be told again because you are doing this in an hour and a half. Some points that I, I was curious about, like... Um, there was an album before Tuesday night, of course, the fabled yeah. songs or, or however you, I don't know if you want to call it the album. Uh, was that, did, was that part of the story that you wanted to tell? Because that couldn't exactly fit in there too. Like there's a song on Point Break soundtrack. Yeah. I mean, there's a song on the Point Break soundtrack and some of those songs were covered. Like one was covered by Tina Turner. One was covered Celine Dion. One was covered by, uh, um, who else? I mean, uh, I can't even remember who all, did songs on it oh Winona yeah I mean there's so much there I mean there's so much stuff like even you know the amount of time that Don Henley and I spent on Capitol Hill fighting for artist rights there's so many things along the way um but you know I don't know I think the real story was more about the person and, and maybe less about all of the um the events along the way but yeah you know I snuck into a Sting album release party with my demo tape and gave it to Hugh Padgham um and there you go you know he signed me great producer um unfortunately my demo was made on what is now the equivalency of uh Pro Tools it was made on Performer program and it was very quantized and very slick sounding and and when we finished it, it did sound quite a lot like my demos and quite a lot like the Sting record. And um, I just felt like I don't know how to follow this up. But if it comes out, if I do what I want to do, then people are going to go, well, you know, so, I, you know, it was an ex expensive lesson. That led to a classic, classic album. Uh, yeah, you know. yes, it did. 
you know, generation defining record right there. And, and I, I want to quickly just hit, you know, because you also put out the soundtrack for this, which is such a great collection of songs. Uh, I was happy to see Love is a Good Thing on here. Personally, that one gets a lot of play around our house. This oh, wow. might be too specific of a, of a question right here, but that scream that you do in Love is a Good Thing after the breakdown happens, was that inspired by anything? Because so that reminds me like Joan Jett's howl that kind of she took it from Mark Boland. And it's just such a good moment. I took mine from David Lee Roth. No, I'm kidding. Um, I always wonder how David Lee Roth does that thing that he does. But no, I um, I don't know. You know, it's one those that's one of those songs that I I and I don't have that many songs that I feel this way about. But I wish I could go back and produce that song again because I would do it differently. Mm. Um, I think I'd probably leave the scream, but. I don't know where those things come from. Five pack cigarettes. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great moment. Uh, a lot of the story is told, of course, about uh, what you're going through at Come On, Come On, which just happens to be the 20th anniversary year right now for that record. I've oh gone back God. and Crazy. Yeah, you're welcome. I'm just going to remind you of all of those things. That's, uh, <laughs> that's what I do. But yes. uh, I went back and listened to that one recently and just sort of fell in love with it again. But it's interesting as you're talking about it in the documentary, because because you do, you have one of your poppiest albums, as I understand, during basically a really depressed, I don't know if you want to say your most depressed time, but a very dark time. Mm -hmm. is, does that affect how you hear those songs? Because you obviously sort of probably know how other people hear those songs, you know, a soak up the sun type of thing. But but for you, knowing where they come from, does that change how you hear them even today? Um, not so much anymore, but there was a period where I could, I could hear the machinations that went into making that record. And to me, it sounded like a record that was filled with toil and, uh, 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 you know, forcing something. And I don't, I don't hear it so much like that, although I don't listen to my music, but when I do hear something at Home Depot or Whole Foods, which is where my music generally gets played, thank God, um, I don't. I don't have that body reaction to it anymore. And Soak Up the Sun was a little bit of an anomaly because I was really sick with the flu when we wrote it. So um, it was all just part of the experience of being uh, just, you know, down. Um, and it was a bright moment. And the fact that people, and it was, but it was a very sardonic song. You know, it was sort of my looking at MTV and seeing all this incredible bling and, and um, everything was about money and just like, what are we doing? I mean, the, the earth is going to blow up from the heat of the sun and we're, everything we're portraying is, you know, money, money. But um, I have a different relationship to all the songs now that I'm older. You know, there's some that I enjoy playing because they meant so much to me, like Weather Channel and like River Wide and those were really soul bearing songs and even favorite mistake um, was, although it was a pop song, it was so, um, you know, so, so much a, a storyteller song uh, from, from what I was going through. So there's great, you know, great songs on every record uh, that never get played, but that I enjoy playing. Um, and then there are the big pop hits that I'm grateful for. That's interesting hearing you talk about Soak Up the Sun like that. Like I, you know, I was thinking about you're an original also on that that record right there, which yeah. sort of takes that. I feel like it takes that same kind of tone, like yeah. you know, especially at that time when 
I don't know, pop singer seemed like a dime a dozen. You know, it's, I don't know if it was uh, so much yeah. a comment on that, but it's it's definitely how I heard it. That's, uh, yeah. It was funny. It, that that song was, you know, and and I'm not, you know, I'm not typically like a bitter person, but there's a lot of um, irony on, on that record. You know, I was getting ready to turn 40. Um, I, I, Owen and I had just split. I hadn't, was not a mom, you know, I was like, oh my God, I, maybe I'm not going to get to be a mom. I'm turning 40. And every girl on the radio or MTV and VH1 is like 12, you know, and, um, and they all sound the same and they all look the same and I don't, where do I fit in? And that was the, you're an original, um, you know, so while it sounds like a happy song and, you know, real kick-ass, it's sort of a, a documentary on how I was feeling. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll end this album with just saying that um, I think Safe and Sound should still be played on every grocery store and radio station across the world. I think it's one of the greatest songs <laughs> you've ever written. I love it. It's, oh, um, God, yeah, gives me the goosebumps every time. It really does. Um, oh, wow. And and so, again, because of time constraints, the documentary, there there is sort of a section that doesn't get to be told. There are albums that don't get to have that 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 life right there. Yeah. Um, so it's kind of curious, you know, when you talk about uh, wildflowers, uh, detours, you know, feels like home. If there were a sequel to this documentary, what is the narrative of the late O's, the late 2000s and the, and the, and the 2010s as far as the music is concerned? Like what, what would be the narrative for your life at that point? I mean, I sound like Joe, Joe Biden a little bit. Um, that was like a period of building back, you know, building back better. Um, I had, I, especially the detours record, I really reevaluated where I fit into the picture of my life. And that was, uh, the result of my life really shifting from being unengaged and being diagnosed with breast cancer to taking time away from music as music as being the salve or the fixer or, you know, the the go-to um and adopting Wyatt and and then there was a moment where I felt like opening my mouth again and those records although they weren't commercially successful have some of my favorite songs on them and they're you know they're more introspective uh the Wildflower record was the product of being in a relationship and being really lonely um uh which was before cancer mm -hmm. um so there's a lot of you know a lot of sort of digging deep on that record as well especially songs like you know, letter to God. Letter to I, God. I, I was going to bring yeah, that. Yeah, that's. I, you know, it's different when you're a faithful or at least a spiritual person to be with someone who doesn't have any spiritual leanings at all. Um, it, it, you know, so that was sort of. There's a lot of stuff on there where I, I see, I hear myself searching for answers um, on those three records specifically, and then the the country record feels like home. I mean, it's a great exercise in songwriting, but you know, just okay. You know, you've got a song with like seven million streams on that record, so it's you know, it's it's still finding its uh what its was people it? out there. Uh, easy, is that right? Easy. Oh, easy. Okay, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, there's some great crafted songs on there, you know, and it was great a great experience for me to sit in a room with other songwriters and up my game. But the direct re reaction to that was the Be Myself record, um, which is. I feel like that's the sister record to my second record, Cheryl Crow, because it's it's more of a okay, let me let me get back to who I am and be who I am. And that felt so great. 
And that's the full circle of uh, of when we started doing these interviews too with Be Myself. So yes, it that's is a nice spot to do this. I, I know we're running a little short on time here. I'll only bring up that uh, you also have uh, three new recordings on this soundtrack. Uh, I've enjoyed playing forever so much on FBK over here. That's uh, just such a beautiful song and, and still the same. Thank and you. With uh, the Stones, "Live with Me," uh, doing the uh, the new version of that one. And and I guess like what was it th those three songs? Because you know, okay, we've got the uh, We've got the career retrospective here and here's the new material. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's daunting to, uh, I mean, it, it's how I felt when we put out the greatest hits record. I'm like, how do you put new songs on a greatest hits? Um, it's like, okay, here are the hits and three duds or, you know, for me, these three songs, um, particularly forever uh, is my favorite song right now that I've ever written. Um, and it, is the direct result of a conversation with my teenager and talking about stress and anxiety and what all he and his friends are facing. Um, things I never had to face when I was a kid, you know, am I going to lose somebody I love in a pandemic? Am I going to, um, is the, is the world going to be able to sustain my children? And, um, I mean, those are heady and, and scary things. And then compound that with social media and all that stuff. And just the idea of trying to remember, to be in the moment, you know, um, and that the greatest gift you can ever give anyone is being present with them. And so I love the song, um, live with me is it, it's featured in the documentary as being the first song I ever played with the Rolling Stones and to, to re to do a version of it. And then to text Mick, which I still can't believe I have his phone number, um, and ask him to play harp on and him turning around saying, yeah, send me the track. Um, it's just really fun, you know, and it's doing really well at rock radio, which is, super cool and then still the same is um you know I, I think being a mom uh and raising kids in this day and age and going wow people are so angry at each other and so so mad and are we not willing to look at history to learn some of the lessons of where we're headed uh, and that's what it's that's what it's about um it's really fun to write they're great songs i, I love all the songs that you always do do you know what happens? For, I mean, are there plans from here or is it just, is this a year of touring? Do you know what you're doing musically next? Well, we're doing a bunch of dates this summer. Um, I'm working on doing, um, hopefully next year, doing some uh, solo shows with some really cool production um, and, you know, with it revolving around stories. Um, just, you know, little odds and ends, things that I want to do, want to accomplish. Um, so other than that, that's... That's it. I got to buy a new car. <laughs> it's the important. I'm on a wait list. The important work right there. The I got to get rid of the minivan, Kyle. <laughs> that, she's got 170,000 miles on her. It's time for her to be put out to pasture. <laughs> <laughs> well, good luck. I know that's the uh, the most important thing on your plate right Those now. Those are the pressing things. That's yes. right. That's right. <laughs> uh, congratulations on this, on a, on a career that uh, that's worthy of such a great documentary and, and all the other things in it. Um, it's always such a pleasure to talk to you about the music. Thank you. It's good to see you. So you want to be a rock and roll star? No? Well, how about a podcast star? Well, as it turns out, there's a new all-in-one platform just for you. It's called Anchor, and it's the easiest way to make a podcast. And check this out. It's free. There's creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. And then Anchor will distribute the podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify and Apple Podcast and, you know, everywhere else in, the, in podcast land. And what's even better, you can actually make money from your podcast. Go figure. Uh, no minimum listenership on that. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. So go ahead. 
Download the free Anchor app right now or go to anchor.fm to get started. So what are you waiting for? Podcast stardom is within your reach. Now strap in because there's a whole lot more Cheryl Crow to come. I'm going to include some of my uh, older interviews with her here as well. Uh, This one, just back to 2020, as we uh, talked about her song, Woman in the White House, uh, the the presidential election that was happening at the time, and her single called In the End. So let's do that part two of Kyle Meredith with Cheryl Crow. Hi, Kyle. It's so great to see you again. How's everything going in the barn these days? You know, it's been kind of a productive time. I mean, I'm ready for it to be over. Honestly, I'm way over it, but, um, but I'm really lucky. I mean, I play a lot of instruments so I can accompany myself and we've been really, you know, I've been trying to keep my band busy and, uh, being really creative. And my kids are always asking me, mom, why are you practicing? And I'm like, because when you practice, you actually get better. And they're both taking like music lessons. They're like, mm-hmm. why are you practicing? I'm like, stop, just because you think you know what you're doing. But it's been okay. You know, um, we've, we've done quite a few quarantine videos and um, we've had a good reaction to those. People are like, we, w- we want you to put those out because we like them better than the albums. Oh. I know, right? So um, I'm like, yes, because we know it better now. We didn't really know the song when we were first recording it. But um, yeah, it's been good. And the live shows that we've done have been, um, so far, really well received. And they're going to be up for another couple of weeks. So we're going to keep going. Yeah. Yeah, it's been really fun to watch all of that. And, And I'll pick up something that you said about knowing the songs better because because in all of this, we sort of get one of those moments, too, with the song Woman in the White House. This is a track you did, uh, you know, about 10 years or so ago. Yeah. And you've given it an update for, for obvious reasons, as we now are, now are in this heated political season once again. But the song started out very different. I mean, this was originally a bit more of a country song. It, looked, it yeah. sounds like in the original version. So aside from the obvious, and we'll be talking about the politics, too, but, but musically, you know, what was on your mind to update it? So the song came out on Feels Like Home, which was the sort of country-tinged record. And um, Hillary Clinton was running for president. And it was more, it was kind of tongue-in-cheek. It was very kind of country-oriented, like actually old-school uh, country-oriented. In fact, we even mentioned Loretta Lynn in it. Um, quite a few years have gone by that it continued to add to the 230-something years of not having a female in the White House. And this time when we did it, it felt much more aggressive. And, um, you know, we did it in a way that felt much more in your face. And, um, you know, just in reflecting how many amazing females historically have led countries. I mean, obviously, Andrea, uh, Angela Merkel and um, Margaret Thatcher, but I mean, all the way back to Golda Meir and women in so many countries that aren't even as forward thinking as America. The fact that we're still, you know, men are not so willing to vote for a woman, a woman and women are not so, so, you know, are, are, are not so committed to voting for a woman in that. That to me speaks volumes about where we're at. You know, um, we keep, con- you know, we keep this conversation about inequity, uh, inequality, and women's pay, and 
uh, I still find that we're having a lot of the same conversations that we've had for the last, you know, 20, 30 years. And, uh, we, you know, it, it's worth, it's worth investigating why we're still stuck in this place. So we'll see what happens with this election. Obviously we're not voting for a female to be president, but the possibility of Kamala Harris becoming president is a real one if, if uh, Joe Biden wins. Yeah, so. that's true. And, and, and who knows what the future holds, but I do love that there was one point that Joe Biden said, you know, that it's on his mind to purposely be a one-term president to get the vice president. And it's almost like it is that if you're voting for Joe, you're almost voting for Kamala, which right. would be great. Would be great. Great, and she's you know she's she's qualified and she is you know prepared and we've I mean this goes all the way back to Geraldine Ferraro you know it it it's time I yeah. mean it, it is time you know I always say this sort of in jest but it's true you know there have been no women that have taken us into a war um, so let's see what happens if we have a different kind of communicator in the White House. Absolutely. And let's get to a point where we don't, um, we don't define a strong woman as a bitch. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I, I always appreciate, you know, you speaking out on this. I know we're on the same page. I'm 99% sure we're voting for the same party here. So it's, uh, <laughs> but, um, so this song comes out and is very quickly followed by a brand new song in the end. I know I compliment you a lot every single time we talk. Um, well, that's why I love you. <laughs> <laughs> if, I, I was trying to think like, you know, if, if you want to call whatever chapter of your career we're on, I was like, maybe this is like chapter three of the hard chapter stops or whatever. This is the best thing. Like I've, I've loved so much that has come out of this. It seems to me um, lyrically almost a very natural progression of when you started from halfway there, that song. Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, not just in, you know, playfulness with those lyrics halfway there and in the end, but, but really going further down that line too. Um, it's an amazing song. I can't get enough of it, but it's also an important song, what you're saying here. So, so let's hear about this one too, because obviously, again, am I off by, by saying this comes really further down the line from what you were talking about with halfway there? Absolutely. I mean, you know, I think I'm always coming from this place of, um, well, I'll tell you, I heard the Dalai Lama speak 20 years ago about compassion. And he said one thing that I thought, wow, that, that is just the simple truth. Unfortunately, it is the human struggle. But if every decision was made from a place of compassion, and no matter what field you're in, whether you're a parent or whether you're the head of a major company or a world leader, that the world would be a completely different place. And it's just that simple. And Halfway there addresses, you know, it, it addresses people having differences, but finding that common ground because we do have more in common than, than we don't. Uh, in the end, it addresses karma, and and karma it basically seems to be owned by in people's minds by Eastern religions. But I look at karma as being a simple truth of whatever you put out into the universe will come back to you. You know. Um, I'm constantly telling my boys when we give money to these guys on the street that sell the newspapers, the dollar newspapers in mm. Nashville. I've got one child that's like, mom, can you give it? What do you, how much do you have? Can you give him a hundred bucks? And then I've got my other son who's like, mom, you know, he probably drives a Ferrari. 
He probably has, he probably has an amazing house. I, you know, I've got like the, the empath and the accountant. And I, I'm constantly saying, look, it's everything in life is about intention. And if you have the means to lift someone else up and you don't do it, you miss out on your blessing. I mean, you miss out on the good energy that comes back to you. You can be a cynic, but what you'll get is you'll get cynicism. It will all come back to you, you know, and I really do believe that. And I believe when you have people in the White House or people in businesses who are out there hawking vaccinations with trackers and everything else, we've gotten to a place where everything is about money. It's all about money. You know, I'm, I'm actually renouncing my membership to the Democratic Party and I'm going to become a libertarian because I feel like at a, now we're at a point where the government is so paid by these special interest groups that nobody on Capitol Hill works for us. And, you know, our public servants are supposed to make $174,000 a year and they make millions. And I just keep saying, what is wrong with this picture when they have to answer to the people that are getting them elected? There's no compassion in that. There's no empathy in that. And that's what the song is about. It's like when you had an opportunity to help all these people of color who are, they're the ones that are suffering the most from job loss and from poor healthcare and COVID, are you doing anything about it? I just, I scratch my head and say, man, we parents need to start modeling to our children in order for them to get some idea of how to save their future because we're not, we're not helping. I mean, I, I don't see us as, as, you know, middle-aged and on up. Um, I don't see us modeling to our kids what's really important. And we, we need to start really take, taking that into account and, and holding, you know, being accountable for that. And leading with compassion. I mean, it is, I've heard the Dalai Lama talk about, you know, the quotes and everything come from there. Um, that's always struck me as something. It, there, there's a part in this song in the end, I think everybody concentrates really on that first verse because, you know, you come out swinging with it. But really the second verse, as I'm looking at here, I mean, that's a powerful statement right there. I mean, and I, I guess I'm, I am tying in a little bit religion with what we're talking about too, because there's a man on the cross with his arms open wide and a fear that they'll quench the world's fires. And, and, and it goes, I'd actually like for you to talk about that a little bit too, because that second verse seems to kind of add, I guess, to what you're talking about here. Yeah, I mean, I, I am a Christian. Um, I am also a, an avid meditator, which I don't believe is owned by any particular religion. Um, I also, um, I, I mean, I have my opinions about the conservative right, not the conservative right, but the, the, uh, the religious right that basically fund the presidency that fund the Republican candidates. Um, you know, we, we all know that Falwell was a person that was very, uh, integral in Trump getting the nomination. And, um, and this song was written before Falwell. The point of it is, is that there is a large population of people that use 
the ideals of Christianity as being an excuse um, for judgment and condemnation. And I was talking with this friend of mine yesterday who was saying there's no place in the Bible where God or where Jesus condemned. I mean, the woman at the well who committed adultery um, and all these people want to stone her. And Jesus said, let, what's the quote? Let the, let the one without sin cast the first stone. Um, you know, that I, I think it, it's so hypocritical to cling to Jesus um, as an identity or for being emblematic of a belief system that is completely antithetical to what Jesus stood for. I mean, Jesus lifted up the weakest of us and brought in and fed those who were without. And um, we don't live by the Beatitudes, certainly. And even, I mean, if I can go out on a limb uh, on the pro-choice issue, um, I mean, not pro-choice, but the, the pro-life issue, I mean, that's a, that is a way for politics to keep people in a political party. Because yeah. if you really were pro-life, you would be at the border trying to help these little babies who were separated from their parents find their families. Or you would be up in arms when um, children were starving in our own backyards. You know, it's... So I find that, you know, Christ and the tear that can quench the world, world fires... I mean, right here in Tennessee with Marsha Blackburn, who do, who is a naysayer of climate change. And it's just shocking. Everything cannot be about politics. It has to be about, as my parents say, leaving the campground better than how you found it. Yeah. You know, it's just that simple. And... I don't know. I, I, I really, you know, if I were to do anything besides music, I think I would try and really work hard to get a constitutional convention um, brought about. I mean, we, we have had them in the past and it's really time to look at the constitution. And although Marsha Blackburn says that you cannot change the constitution, um, and I will say that she would not be in the office, nor would she have the right to vote unless we had done that. Yeah, change the constitution, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, I, I would like to see us look at the constitution from a more compassionate angle and, and, and really address some of the things that are archaic that were based on a colony of 13 or based on a country that was much smaller and that was growing but spread out and that was based on, uh, you know, landowners and I, I just think there there has to be a way to bring people together to look at what is best for people and and one of those things is getting money out of the pockets of the people who are defined as public servants mm. and they're not going to do it right because so, why would they right yeah they're also not going to pass term limits uh, um, you know, there's a multitude of things they're not going to do because it doesn't behoove them. Yeah. Well, once again, um, I mean, 
You didn't know this was going to be so uplifting, did you, There's Kyle? so much packed into that song, and that was my point. I mean, honestly, that's what I was hoping for. There is so much packed into that song. Um, and I'll, I'll bring it around, too, because you've been writing like this for, you know, all throughout your career. You've written many different types of songs, but, you know, you've addressed stuff in the past. Have you noticed if it's changed the way you would write, and I, I want to blanket statement here saying politically, you know, um, especially as we've gotten closer to the moment we're in now, have you noticed that how you write a political song in this way has changed? Well, I, I all I can say is everything is everything to me right now. Like for instance, making threads became sort of a, a stepping off point at saying, I don't, I don't have to make albums anymore. I mean, I don't, I also don't get to make albums anymore in in my mind um, because it, it takes so much time and so much money and you're putting stuff together that you just want to go, it needs to come out now. It should just come out now. And aren't we that, aren't we that civilization now where we want it now anyway, and in a minute it's going to be gone. And so if, if we are, abandoning this idea of making a, an album statement, a full journey, a beginning, a middle and an end, then writing this way for me is, it's so in the immediate and it's almost like being, a, I mean, it's like being a commentator and it's really for me, it's joyful. It's, it's also full of uh, not just immediacy, but um, a real urge to, I guess just to to say to address the elephant in the room, and obviously the elephant for all of us looks a lot, you know, different shades according to our belief systems. But it's a great time to be an artist, you know. Um, it's also a great time to be a 58-year-old artist because I'm never going to compete with Ariana Grande, and I'm certainly never going to compete with Cardi B, and I'm not going to be relevant to the 13 to 26 demographic and there's liberation in that you know there's liberation in the fact that i know when i write a song that i'm not the only one that feels the way i feel um and that music has been everything historically it's been the pop songs but it's also been the protest songs and there was a time when protest songs actually got played on the radio um, before radio was all about money um, but there are so many different avenues of ways to get people to hear music and people know so many different ways to find music. And so, you know, I just feel like it's, it's a part of my DNA and it's just what I love. Yeah. And I cannot not write about the things that I see and feel. I'm raising two little boys who are asking me the hard questions every day on the way to school. And it's on my mind and on my heart. Well, they end up being great songs. And I, and I will say about, you know, keeping up, you know, competing with Ariana or Cardi, it, it makes me think of like when you first came around, you know, how you were kind of taken in by all of your heroes. And now it's these new pop artists who are calling you their hero. It's like, you know, that's, you know, you might not be competing on the pop charts, but at the same time, you're still very much in the conversation. And I think that speaks everything about the music that you still put out. I mean, that's- oh, That is really cool. Um, you know, there is there is a lot of incredible music being made. Um, 
you know, I am of the age and I am raising two little boys where I am now the tipper gore in the car. Um, I, you know, I'm constantly like, we're not, you can't listen to that, you know, or I'm, I'm sorry, we're not, we're not going to listen to that. And unfortunately that's what they, you know, that's what's at pop radio. It's mm -hmm. pretty much all about sex and they're young enough. That's a lot of the stuff that's in the songs they don't understand yet. So, um, that's funny. I, my, my, 10 year old who was seven at the time was going around and stripped that down for me, you know? <laughs> I mean, to, to be fair, I remember singing, let's talk about sex, baby, you know, back when I was. <laughs> uh, oh, I can remember learning to play. Whoa, 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 whoa. My love does it good. And my dad coming in and saying, what did you just play? You're not going to play that anymore. You know? So yeah, yeah. there's going to be censorship wherever there is a parent and a child. Sure. Sure. But there's such good music out there. We we have a great radio station here that is an independent radio station called Lightning 100. And I'm constantly shazamming. And, you know, um, it's really, it's fun to be still being inspired yeah. by young artists, you know, and old artists. I mean, I still listen. I go to Robert Plant. I'm just like, dude, you are still writing amazing music. Mm -hmm. So you just have to dig a little bit harder, but... Nonetheless, um, I love it. Yeah, I know those Lightning guys well with Rev. Of course, we have WFPK here in Louisville, and uh, Louisville. They, kinda... they have great yeah. radio stations there too. Oh, we we love we love those guys down here. Uh, I'll wrap up with just what's next. Then, I mean, do you th are, should we expect you know some more songs like this leading into this? Do you have more things to say musically going into the election or? Oh no, I have nothing more to say. <laughs> I don't believe that a second. We just did uh, songs from the Big Green Barn last Friday and Saturday, and it's still up. You can still buy tickets for it. And that was really fun. Um, it, was, it was fun now that it's out. At the time, it was the weirdest thing. We did a live show. It was an hour and a half outside. Um, me and three of my bandmates. We had one tech and a sound guy and some cameras. And then we came in the next day um, and did an acoustic set in, in here. And it's very storytellers. Um, you know, it's, it's an odd thing now to play for nothing, for no one. You know what I mean? I'll go out and I'll play shows and there'll be like a multitude of people holding up their phones. And it's just like, put your phone down. But now I'm playing for phones with no people holding right. them. So it's really weird. But um, but we got that under our belt. So we'll continue to do that in different, I think, in different formations. I think we'll do, next one we may do the Complete Globe Sessions live. Um, we're just going to try to keep, keep the ball rolling and keep as many of my folks working as possible. Um, we also just did Audible. Mm -hmm. Are you audible and that was really interesting as well i i heard james taylor's audible and that's the reason when they asked me to do it i said yeah i'll do it because i think now with social media and all the branding and everything is very calculated to hear somebody actually tell the intimate stories the ones you don't necessarily get to read about or the ones that aren't you know blown up in people or us or whatever it's the real intimate stuff that i think gives you a glimpse into um, people's real life struggles and 
I don't know. I, so I, I did, I wound up doing that. And I talked a lot about some things I've never talked about. And that, that was, that was definitely cool. So, you know, I'm just going to keep first raising my kids and then secondly, just making music. Yeah. Well, we're so appreciative that you do too. Thank you so much for the music that you made and that you continue to make. We're going to be there for every, every single single. We'll be there. You're awesome. Thank you. Uh, I'll, I'll definitely be talking with you next year, right after I get my mammogram. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I hope for. Every year, Kyle Meredith interview mammogram. We're once a year, every time. That's right. That's right. Hey there, it's Kyle Meredith from Kyle Meredith With. After you check out the latest episode of my show, uh, be sure to check out some of our other great programs on the Consequence Podcast Network, including Standing BTS, a bi-weekly podcast covering all things BTS and ARMY, and The Opus, Consequence's original documentary podcast exploring legendary albums and their lasting legacies. So head to Consequence.net to listen to these podcasts and many great others. Now we'll jump back to 2019. Uh, that's when Cheryl and I were getting to talk about her album Threads. It was uh, the record uh, that had this humongous lineup on it. So we talked about her uh, many collaborations, uh, one of them with uh, the late Johnny Cash, as well as uh, teaming up with Bonnie Raitt and Mavis Staples. We also talk about both the times she appeared at Woodstock's, uh, Woodstock 94 and 99. So here's part three of Kyle Meredith with Cheryl Crow. Hey, Kyle. How are you? Let's get into threads. So, you know, here we are talking last year, and you tell me about this final album that you're going to do, and, and we're finally here. I, I feel like I've been waiting forever, even though it's not even been a year, but all the excitement built up around this. The whole thing, I mean, this is a collaborations record, as you've said, and, and the names are huge. I think you've done more collaborations than any other artist that I'm aware of, like in the history of music. <laughs> well, to be honest, I think I might be probably uh, one of the artists who's been around the longest, um, and that may be why you're you're equating me with a lot of collaborations. I've been around a long, long time. I mean, I'll be honest with you, I, I've been really lucky. I, when I first came out, I really was not um, embraced by my peer group. My peer group was like Billy Corgan and Beck and Cole and of course Cole Seattle scene, and I was definitely not embraced by that scene. I was kind of embraced by the people that had inspired me, like Clapton and the Rolling Stones and Bob Dylan and Dalton. A lot of those people championed me. And so I've just had the good fortune of having opportunities to play with those people through the years. And so this record really is a, kind of an homage to the people that were there in the early days. They were the people that inspired me as a kid. And also, it's sort of my opportunity to acknowledge and collaborate with people I think are going to be around for a long term and who have picked up that baton of live music and songwriting and musicianship and who are going to carry it forward. Chris, it started with St. Vincent. Uh, I see Isbell. Uh, is, he's part of this too, right? Oh, yeah. Jason Isbell is just crazy great. And uh, in fact, he was in my studio yesterday. And we, I mean, he's just. He's so talented. He, I don't think people even realize what a great guitar player he is. But um, he's he's on it. Chris Templeton, who's amazing and is one of my favorite writing partners. Margo Price, Brandy Carlisle, Marin Morris, Andre Day, Gary Clark Jr. You know, I, I feel like that's to me that's that's the hopeful look at the future of music. And and I mean, it's an insane list because here you're just you know talking about the newer class, and then you bring up the the uh, the older class in there with with Keith Richards and Stevie Nicks, Neil Young, Willie Nelson, Emmylou Harris, James Taylor. Joe Walsh, Don Henley, 
I mean, I would feel like every moment is a pinch me moment, but has there been like the craziest time in the studio? No, not. I mean, it's all it's all pinch me moments. And actually, some of the I mean, the big pinch me moment is the Johnny Cash collaboration and the way it turned out and the profundity of the moment, you know, that song coming out now and what's happening, you know, not only in America, but kind of in, in the evolution of civilization. I know that sounds like really heady, but I mean, just the way we're treating each other and our, our lack of compassion and even ethics to, to a certain extent. It, it's it's hard for me to hear him singing those words and not feel extremely emotional. So, you know, there's a lot of that on this record. There's a lot of, I mean, I hear Eric playing Beware of Darkness and it makes me cry. So, you know, I, I guess in a weird way, I've been around a long time, but this is what music has meant to me. It still moves me. It still makes me feel. And that's what I want it to feel like. I want my kids to feel that way about music. So I guess that's the whole point. Yeah. And and with Redemption Song, I mean, as you're saying, it is such a powerful moment. I, I think you were going in the direction, this direction already, but, you know, so here's a song that, that you had released in the 90s, and, and then Johnny does his version of it, and now you've paired it together. What did that song mean to you when you first wrote it, and, and does it mean anything different now? Well, I need to backtrack a little bit. Before I write records, oftentimes I'll sit down with my Bob Dylan, or I used to do this, I'd sit down with my Bob Dylan lyrics book, and it would sort of just get the juices flowing, and I would always be shocked at how his songs, even though he wrote them in the 60s and 70s and even in the 80s, they still pertain to today, and in a perfect world, that's what you want your songs to do. You want them to be timeless. Well, all of them are going to be timeless, but with Redemption Day, I wrote it in 96. I wrote it after having gone over and played to the troops in Bosnia, and I felt like when, when I put it out in 96, it needed to be heard then, um, and then cut to 2002 when Johnny recorded it. He really felt the same. He's like, I'm recording this. I feel like it's important that people hear it right now. We were, I think, maybe I'm not sure if we were in the Persian Gulf or I'm not sure where we were at, but he he was so adamant about this. It's going to be the cornerstone of, of my album. It's important that people hear it right now. And then it didn't come out for years because he passed away and his record label, I think, held on to it for a while. So now it's coming out and I feel like it's, it's really found its moment because of what we're going through and just the attack on truth and to hear Johnny singing about what freedom really is, that we're born into freedom. Knowing what he stood for, the fact that he was, you know, against the Iraq War, he was against the Vietnam War, he stood up for Native Americans. It it just, you know, the song, I think, really has found its moment. You know, the first two times with, with you writing it the first time with Johnny, the second time, both really centered in on wars. It is interesting this time that it's not... It's not exactly a physical war, you know, two countries warring out there that it's speaking for, but it sort of starts speaking for humanity in a crisis that we're in, you know, it's whether it's political or or, or women's rights and, and the abortion topic. I mean, it's, it, it is um, amazing and, and unfortunate in a powerful way how it still speaks to this moment. Yeah, I guess, though, for me, the end of the song is where the hope lies. Mm-hmm. Um, the fact that, you know, it, it just the line of it's a where a baby cries. I mean, the fact is we are born in, in freedom and the freedoms that we enjoy hold a certain responsibility and that we all share in that freedom. Some of us don't get more freedom than other people. That's not the way it should be. Um, as we experience a loss of freedom, you know, with the abortion situation or even a, a loss of freedom where guns are con- um, concerned, you know, it's it's a loss of freedom for kids to not be able to go to the movies um, or to be able to go to school and know that they're safe. All those ideas you know, I think if we step back and, and and look at what freedom really means, 
um, we, we really have to rewrite how we're conducting ourselves. So we'll see. You know, we'll see what happens. This is a real telltale time in our in our history for sure. I'll move on using that to the, to the second single with Livewire because here you have two artists who have spent their entire careers talking about Bonnie Raitt and Mavis Staples saying mm-hmm. these things too. I mean, really you know, waving this flag hard to have the three of you all on a song. I mean, (laughs) I'll I'll use the topic again, Uh, the thread in the thread between all three of you all is so powerful as to as to how you've done your careers. Well, and that I mean, that's a true pinch me moment. I, I, I got turned on to the staple singers really by osmosis. I mean, all their their songs were a part of the fabric of my growing up. I mean, that, they were the, they were the soundtrack, and I don't think there was anyone that wasn't familiar with their tunes. And then, of course, the last waltz came out, and you got to see young Mavis singing singing the weight. And obviously, we all know what what Bonnie has stood for through the years as well with her now nukes. And also, I went and saw her when I was seventeen. She was the first woman I ever saw who played a guitar as if it was just an extension of her voice, and that that's what sort of gave me permission to pick up a guitar and think I could do that. So there's so many moments on this that I feel like are just, I mean, it's just a tiny bit of my gratitude. There's no way I can ever pay for or pay pay them for what they've done, what they've inspired in me, um, not only as a woman and not only as an activist, but just as an artist. So, yeah, I mean, it's just dream come true. <laughs> And the, listening to that, I mean, Bonnie slides sounding as good as ever. And, and when Mavis comes in, I mean, talk about a huge second chapter, third chapter, whatever she's in right now. But uh, both of those artists just, you know, I, I mean, every career goes in peaks and valleys and waves. But, uh, you know, that's huge moment <laughs> for both of those. Yeah, it's, it's interesting because obviously Mavis has been working with Tweety for a while. Now she just worked with Ben Harper and... There's a whole new wave of energy that young people are hip to her, you know, and that want to be a part of her immense talent and want to push that forward. Um, Bonnie has had, I mean, she's, oh my goodness, she's like a cat. I would say I'm a cat with nine lives. She's a cat with nine lives. She's been around for a long time, and she, she's had so many great mountaintops in her career, and she just keeps going. And for me, you know, I'm, I feel really blessed. I, I got a little bit of a late start as far as my notoriety. I was already, you know, um, pushing 30 when my first record came out. And I, you know, I've been at it, you know, 27 years. And I feel like I still am valid, you know, even though radio is so youth-oriented. In fact, everything is youth-oriented and perfection and youthful beauty and all that kind of thing. And I, I think there's, you know, Joe Walsh and I wrote this song called The Star of the Good Days. Just because you're older doesn't mean that you're not valid anymore, you know. And I, I love that like Mavis and, and Bonnie and Emmy Lou still doing the best work. And that's what gives me hope. I, I feel like, hey, I can keep doing this. I can keep writing and playing and still be inspired and still put my best foot forward and, and still matter. I'm glad you said those words. I need you to say those words because I'm a fan and I, I need I need you to say those words. <laughs> oh, thank you so much. With uh, with the rest of this record, with the songs we haven't heard yet, I mean, um, are are they all co-writes? You know, how how did this work with you? Are are, are there more covers or any covers? Well, we started the album out actually with Chris Christopherson. He was kind of the inspiration of the record, and we did Border Lord, which was one of his tunes. I, I wrote a song for Willie. Um, with a buddy of mine, Shane McAnally. I wrote, you know, the Live Wire and the song for Emmylou, I wrote for them, with them in mind. And I wrote those with Jeff Trott. Joe Walsh and I wrote a tune together 
uh, Story of Everything, which has my buddy Chet D on it and Jerry Clark on today. I wrote that with Steve, and we wrote that, you know, actually, that was sort of in uh, response to what was going on politically, and it just laid itself out like, oh, we got to get Gary, and we got to get, I want to get Chuck. And, you know, it just, it was very organic. I had, you know, just certain things in mind and certain things that I kind of, wrote for for those people. So, and we only got a few minutes le- uh, here and I always tend to do the anniversaries. Uh, I've um I've been asking a lot of uh, artists who have played some of the Woodstocks uh, uh to share some stories and but what, you're one of the few that's actually played oh, yeah. a couple of those. You you've played a couple of the Woodstocks. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Um and was a lot for the first one. 94 was a game changer for me. You know, is very new and when I came off stage from Woodstock, the trajectory of my career changed at that moment. I mean, it was it was the moment where people, there, there was a moment, oh, who is this artist? And it, everything really did change for me. Um, I mean, you can ask anybody that was around for it that it was before YouTube and people wrote about it and found out about it and word of mouth traveled and it really did change my career. I, I suddenly was on the map. The second one was kind of an unpleasant experience. It was just, I don't know if it was a matter of it being poorly run, but it, it didn't have the spirit of Woodstock. People were overcharged, couldn't bring in their own food or water. They were overcharged for food and water. Um, it was extremely hot. It, it just was a nightmare and it, just a very unpleasant experience. So I hope if they, I, I think that the 50th anniversary one, the one that they're doing with Santana, I think hopefully it will get back to the spirit of the original or even to the 94 one. 99. Hopefully that one will just kind of fade off into <laughs> some sort of smoky recollection. It was it was pretty bad. You, you had a good set. I've recently watched it again on YouTube because it's all up there. And I feel like you had a good set at we least had in a good, Yeah, We had a good set, but kids were throwing mud up on stage. And because the, the porta-potties were leaking, it wasn't just mud. I mean, it was very unpleasant. They were throwing pennies on stage. Andy Dick came out before us and did a really extremely foul set. It just wasn't a good. I think right after us was clown. What is it? Clown posse. Yeah. What was that? Insane clown posse. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and clown, insane clown. It just didn't have the spirit. It didn't have the continuity or the spirit. And it, I think it just was poorly run. There were kids out there that were uh, passing out left and right. A lot of topless girls. It just was really just for us on stage watching it. It wasn't enjoyable, but we did play our hearts out, even though there was just all kinds of stuff. Like I can remember playing bass and having mud hit my hand on the bass and having to actually ask the audience to quit throwing throwing mud. So there you go. Yeah. You know, I, I love the first one. The first one was just incredible to walk out on stage and see, you know, 100,000 people or however many people were there and to walk off stage knowing that that was the biggest moment I had had ever in my life of playing music. It, it was just really, I mean, I have a great memory of that. So that's the memory I, ha- I hold. <laughs> well, I know it's, it's a name that's been something that captured imaginations. I'm, I'm hopeful that we're in the period where it can again. And I, I, I do want to tie that back around because I think that speaks for uh, the, this record Threads, too. I mean, it, it, is a, it is a time and a place for an album like this, and, and I so appreciate that you've done it. And, and really just amazing oh, songs. Well, thank you so much. Thank you so much. That makes me want to cry. Thank you. You know, it, it's it's funny. I I don't know. You know, I was I was around when people bought records and and they held the actual physical copy and 
it's it's hard to know if people will hear the whole thing, if they'll hear one or two songs. But all I know in my heart is that it has meant more to me making the record than anything that can come out of it. So hopefully people will, will enjoy it when and if they hear it. Uh, I, I certainly will be, and I appreciate you taking me along for the journey on it, too. Well, thank you so much, and thanks for talking with me. Anytime. We'll see you around. Take care out there. Okay. We'll see you in Louisville. All right. So the next stop on the uh, Cheryl Crow tour here, uh, this is back when she was just uh, announcing what would eventually become Threads. This was back in uh, in 2018. So she talks about teaming up with Stevie Nicks and Don Henley uh, and her song that she did with St. Vincent. As well as, uh, let's see, uh, the, how uh, Bob Dylan came to be a mentor. Part four of Kyle Meredith with Cheryl Crow. How are you, Kyle? I'm um, great. It's a pleasure to talk to you again. Good to talk to you, too. We got a lot to talk about. Now, I do want to jump in the time machine, but uh, you went and surprised the world recently with a, uh, a brand new single, which paired two of my favorite artists of all time together, you and St. Vincent, Annie Clark, uh, and this single, Wouldn't Want to Be Like You. It's so Aww. good. Thank you. I, I'm I'm just thrilled that people are noticing it. You know, it's it's really been it's really been an awesome thing. Um, I, I love Annie. I'm a big fan. I, I sent her this track, and she was like, "Yes, let me add it." And she just brought all of her brilliance to it, and it really, I think, created an edge there that is so synonymous with with the meaning of the song. So fun to play live, and I can't wait to play it with her. And uh, we're we're psyched. Is, is there any other backstory? I mean, you know, what you're talking about, I, I feel like is the is the obvious stuff here. But but where did this song come from? When when would it when did it happen? Yeah, you know, um, I've been in the studio just off and on when I felt like being in the studio and that's been great my studio is above my it's in my barn actually above horse stalls and so i have the convenience of being able to just go down and write and create when i felt like it and i have really felt like it a lot lately um it's a luxurious time to be an artist if you want to write about you know what's going on there's a lot to write about and um just this climate of the truth not not mattering um, has really been unnerving to me, especially when you're raising kids, you know, and you're trying to explain that no matter how painful it is, the truth is the most important thing. And so, you know, it just started with that. It started with all these stories swirling around after um, the president was elected, just, you know, about the idea of how much wealth there is out there and how many people are getting away with becoming wealthy on the backs of other people and how at the end of the day, people are just going to believe what they're told by the person that they support. And it's, it's very, it's very alarming. You know, it's just, it's, it's a very alarming time. It it does. It feels like our information is hijacked in a lot of ways. How do you get it back? You know, my, my whole thing has always been, you know, do your research, find reputable places to inform yourself. But in, in this day and age, it's really the Wild West with technology giving us the opportunity to get news in a gazillion different ways. And it doesn't always, you know, it's not always the truth. And it's impossible to discern what is what is true and what isn't. And it's not like the old days where you went to the New York Times or you, whatever your reputable source was, you could find out, you know, the truth. So it's, a, you know, it's, it, there's a lot, a lot to write about. It's, it's great fun to go in the studio and just kind of mix it up. And I, I'm, I'm especially glad that people are latching onto this song because it is just a tale of what what line can kind of get you into. I mean, eventually, I think always the truth comes out. You know, the truth always does 
come out. So that's kind of the story of the song. Now this does come off the um, on the heels, I guess, of uh, another one-off single you released. Uh, was it late in the year last year with the, the Dreaming Kind? Uh, this this sort of is this the new mo for you? Just these little one-off singles that you're talking about? Because um, I also noticed that you know there's no label attached to this. This is just you putting these out. Yeah, no, we've had a great we're having a great experience with this company called Stem. We put out the Dreaming Kind on Bandcamp, and that was amazing. Um, and that came on the heels of uh, the shooting in in Florida, and it was the five year anniversary um, of Sandy Hook. So. I've got this record in the can that's going to come out next year, and it's it's a very collaborative record with people I've asked to collaborate with me, the people I've loved and have worked with and have been heroes of mine forever. And um, I have people like Stevie Nicks on it and Keith Richards and uh, Joe Walsh and Don Henley, who was one of the first people to give me a gig. Johnny Cash is on it. And I really love the record so much. But at the same time, I think, you know, how would I follow that up with an album? And I do think that Albums as an art form are kind of, um, you know, a little bit of a dying, a little bit of a dying art form that people are more interested in singles. So I've, I've sort of made the decision in my head that the record that comes out next year will be my, my last full album and I'll just start putting songs out. And that feels good to me. It feels great not to spend the time in the studio to make a full, fully art realized conceptual album, but just to put out really pertinent songs that feel immediate. I mean, as a fan, yeah, to, to have these just keep rolling out, you know, gimme, 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 uh, I'm all for that. And I know it's about staying energized, you know, for you. So that's that's exciting. It is. Yeah. You know, it's uh, I was I, I mean, I, went, I, I came into the age of technology kicking and screaming. I mean, I was like holding on to my vinyl like just, you know, like it was uh, Armageddon, you know, I, just so faithful about analog and uh, people buying records and knowing who played on them. And, you know, slowly I've, I've sort of dragged myself into the new age and really want to take advantage of the fact that it can make things really immediate and it can give you the opportunity to be you know sort of a musical tweet as opposed to a newspaper that when it comes out it's already old you know it can be very immediate so i'm loving it well i do want to jump into the time machine because there, there's this great thread that works with a, a few of the anniversaries that you're having this year with your records uh you've written topical your entire career uh, obviously these new singles uh, are just the latest entry in that detours which come out 10 years ago i was looking back at that and Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's interesting because we were in the middle of the Iraq war at that point. And, and when I look, yeah. you know, peace yeah. be upon us all, Babylon, gasoline, like it seems to be telling the tale of the time. But then I looked at the very first song and it said, God bless this mess. And I thought, that's almost cute now. That's that's quaint. You know what we were looking at. I know. And, you know, I was really careful about how I was saying things because didn't want to ruffle any feathers. And now we're past the point where, you know, for better or for worse, Trump kind of ushered in the new age of there is no, there should be no political correctness. So, you know, in some ways it gives artists like me who have always been particularly artful and careful about saying things, the opportunity to just, you know, barf it out um, for better or for worse. But God bless this mess was really a, a reference to the fact that we went into a war that was based on untruths or, you know, not uh, not factual information. And then you see that kind of thing all the time, and yet we're not even really questioning it. So that song was, and that whole album really was inspired by what was happening in that time, at that time. And that time really seems 
much less daunting to me now than what it was at the time. I mean, at the time, it seemed extremely alarming what was going on in the country. But wow, things have changed. And, um, you know, just got to keep writing. I don't think you get enough credit as a protest singer, because I definitely think that that should be tagged on to every time someone, you know, throws out all of the accolades and everything for for Sheryl Crow. But when I do talk to a lot of of, of folks who do those type of songs, topical songs, protest songs, whatever you want to call it, Mm -hmm. there's this sort of idea Mm -hmm. that maybe if I write it now, I won't have to sing it in five or ten years. And do you look back on these songs and think, I could totally bring those back in my set and they're completely going to work again? Well, I'll tell you, um, this has been a, a habit of mine forever. Uh, I always pull out Bob Dylan songbooks before I make a record. There's something about his cadences, his tone. He's almost like the Bible in that you can pick up the Bible and you can point to something, and invariably the Scripture will pertain to your immediate uh, dilemma. Uh-huh. You know, it just seems like God is all in that. Well, I, I experience that when I pick up the Bible. I experience that when I pick up. Bob Dylan. You know, I I read his lyrics and I think this stuff could be now. You know, his questioning uh, during the uh, 60s, giving voice to a whole movement of people that were really asking questions and saying, look, we're not satisfied and we're overlooked and we're underserved. And all these songs could be now. And I guess as an artist, you hope for that. But for me, I mean, I'd love for all things to be wrapped up in a tiny bow, tidy bow and not ever have to sing songs that voice some kind of social unrest. But wow, what a humbling thing to be able to pull out a song from 10 years ago and feel like it still has a life and it still has pertinence. And um, so, yeah, you know, it's, it's a little bit of a catch-22, but a lot of those songs on that Detours record are still pretty representative. The fact that we're still embedded in this thirst for oil and gas. We're always talking about gas. And there's just so much of it that doesn't change. And the bottom line is that it just all comes down to money and greed. So, you know, those, and that's biblical. That goes all the way back to biblical times too. So, you know, it's just part of our humanity, I guess. I'm going to, I'm going to take the opportunity to seg there uh, talking about Dylan. Uh, The Globe Sessions turning 20 years old. You uh, you had a Dylan song on there with Mississippi. I, yes. I've never known the story because you released that before he released his own version. Did, was that gifted to you? How did, how did you end up with Mississippi? Well, I've known Bob for a lot of years. I opened up for him at Roseland, and he opened up his friendship to me. And he he's you know he is he's a, an outstanding mentor. I will tell you. Um, I was making the Globe Sessions and. Uh, Thought, um, I thought I had finished it, and I got on an airplane. We had we turned it in. It was called The Ride. And I get on the airplane, and I pick up USA Today, and it talks about the release of my record coming out called The Ride, and I just felt this lump in my throat, feeling like this record is not done. It just doesn't feel done. And I got to the studio. I was working on the York at the Globe, and my manager, um, who's very good friends with Bob's publisher, as am I, great, great people Bob has around him, called and said, hey, Bob, has three or four songs that he wanted to know if Cheryl wanted to take a listen to. And that, I mean, that was just like manna from heaven. <laughs> and Mississippi, yeah, and they don't send it to you. They come over and they play it for you. So I heard the song and I was like, that's it, man. And that really breathed new fire and material into the new record. I, I wrote two other songs that went on that record. And it just, it just really breathed some new life into it. But the funny thing about it was, is I recorded it just as I remembered. 
And we did it kind of up and kind of feeling like the birds. And then years later, or a couple of years later, I saw him and he had already put it out. I think it was Time Out of Mind that had Mississippi on it or maybe the next Love and Theft. It was, sure, yeah, Love and Theft. Yeah. Love and Theft. Love and Theft, yes. And uh, I said, well, how, how did you like Mississippi? How did you like our version? He goes, well, how did you like mine? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I was like, I loved it. <laughs> and this is really slow, you know, but it's just, you know, that's a testament to a great song that can be done in so many different ways um, with those kinds of lyrics and his brilliance with melody structure. So, yeah, you know, I've just had these little tiny gifts dropped from heaven all through my career, and that was definitely one of them. Yeah, <laughs> and it's such a fun thing to listen to. We 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 still throw that one on all the time. Uh, around the house. Uh, I do love your version of that. And oh, thank you. Yeah, and there's a lot of things that happened with the Globe Sessions. I mean, you ended up winning Best Rock Album at the Grammys the following year in 99 for this. It was self-produced. Was that the first time you went completely self-produced, or if, or am I missing a, a credit there? Well, the second record was self-produced, the Sheryl Crow okay. record. Right. Um, I went in to make my second record and had a lot of success on the first record and was pretty worn out and just a little cynical and uh, went in to make my record with my first producer. And I think he, he also was going through his own battles and we worked for about a day and then he decided he was going to go back home to California. And I was just in New Orleans. So I thought, well, I called my manager and he said, Hey, you demo your stuff all the time. And they sound like records. Just do, do what you do and we'll figure it out later. And that's what we did. That's what that record was. It was just the product of being in New Orleans and having the urge to kind of prove myself as a you know fully realized artist. And when you look back at it, I mean, you know, because Tuesday Night Music Club, which I bring that up, 25th anniversary, that thing just keeps, you know, yeah. trudging away right there. But, you know, I, I know that it took a while for that one to light. Like it took a, like a few singles to, to catch on for that one. But for the second oh, record, yeah. yeah, for the second record, the self-titled one to you know, be on the heels of that success. I mean, the Globe Sessions, to me, I'd wondered, like, like now, was the confidence more there? Like, okay, it's all happened. I can come out, like, knocking this out of the park. I mean, what was the mind, What was the mood there as you're going into it? Well, it's funny, because this last record that I made called the Be Myself record, I went back and listened to some of those records because I wanted to just sort of examine. Yeah, I don't listen to my records, so I kind of wanted to just re-examine um, what the spirit of those were, and it reminded me of what I was going through when I made the records. And if you're really open and you're doing your, you know, you're you're writing your your story, you can pretty much go back in time and relive what went into making that record. And the Globe Sessions was the result of, I think, having settled into my position as incredible you know the first record the jury was still out the second record um it came on really strong and gave me the opportunity to say look i, I am a real artist i do write i do play and i can produce so the third record i went into it with a really i'd gone through a really emotional breakup and i was able to just kind of close the door and be that part of myself which was you know really vulnerable and uh, a little bit heartbroken and a little more worldly, a little more wide-eyed uh, than perhaps I was on my first two records. So, you know, all that stuff kind of just spilled into that record. It's always amazing when, you know, from the fans' point of view, all you see is the success, success, never thinking about the the balance of an artist's life as it's going on, like when all the good things are happening and something is falling apart personally. And yeah, it's a weird thing. You know, I'm not, I'm not a, a person that has ever enjoyed fame. 
I think some people are really built for it, and some people that really is what drives the machine. But for me, um, what always drove my machine was that I had all these people that I had aspired to be like, like Stevie, who's like the most fully realized artist I've ever known, and people like Dylan and uh, great songwriters like Joni Mitchell. And I just didn't, I didn't want to be less than that. I wanted to be, I wanted to make music that felt like it could be around for a long time. So the same thing has always been sort of sort of a strange, I don't know, kind of a strange experience for me. Well, there's plenty of great singles that ended up on there. I mean, my favorite mistake, Anything But Down, uh, a big favorite. Did, do you all talk uh, ever talk about doing the deluxe editions for, for those records like, uh, like Tuesday Night ended up having? You know what? I'm really bad about looking backwards. I'm sure, uh, I'm sure, in fact, the Tuesday Music Club record, that was the brainchild of, the, the deluxe edition was the brainchild of, I guess, the record label and the managers. And I, I really don't even know. But I like the idea, you know, there's always a reason that you don't put songs on an album. So to add stuff to a deluxe that you didn't really want on the record always feels a little bit like you're betraying yourself. <laughs> I don't even know what's left over from the Globe sessions. I, I really don't know. For that matter, it was left over from Detours. I've always, I've got like a just a full on trough of of cassettes, unfortunately, you know, back back in the day, cassettes and and dat tapes and all that stuff, and and two inch tapes of stuff that you know just sits in vaults. So I'm I'm sure that idea will be bandied about, and we'll see what comes of it. Uh, it, it definitely worked for me for the uh, for the Tuesday Night Music Club record because Killer Life ended up on there, and oh God, I loved that song so. Oh, and my gosh, you know, a lot of that stuff I just totally forgot about. You know, you just, it's 25 years ago is a long time. Yeah. You know, that was one of the shocking things about being at Bonnaroo and seeing all these young people singing songs that were older than them. <laughs> I was in shock. I saw that in your face. You kept commenting on that. I thought that was, uh, I thought that was really funny. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Oh, I just didn't expect it at all. And uh, just, well, we, we had such a great experience because there's just, so much, I don't know, I just felt just total joy, and I felt like the audience, all these young kids came there with just a, a euphoric feeling, and uh, man, it was a great day. It was a lot of fun. We, we really enjoyed that set. Uh, I'll, I'll end here. I want to I trace sort of a line, maybe a dotted line, back from the first album to the new single, because when I heard Wouldn't Want to Be Like You, not as a direct reference, but my first thought was the Nana song from the uh, Tuesday Night Music Club. Yeah, actually, just hearing you say that, it, there, there is sort of a, there is, I guess, a little bit of a, unconsciously, a little bit of a, um, yeah, a little bit of a tie to that in the fact that it's sort of like a old school, well, I, I guess by today's terminology, it would be rap, but, you know, a, a, a talking blues kind of thing. Yeah. Um, very politically delivered, you know, a lot of, a lot of references, gosh, a lot of references in the Na Na song, and, and definitely this song tells the tale of a lot of greedy people. Well, it's the stuff that I've loved through your entire career, the Na Na was, but a big favorite of mine. Of course, you know, it's, I guess you'd call that a deep cut, but I like hearing those, uh, those moments creep up with, with your new songs as well. So I'm happy to feel like uh, just feeling like a deep cut has made it out. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's really... It's, it's, I'm really tickled about it. So, And I have a lot of thanks to be throwing towards Annie Clark for, for bringing it. If you guys ever want to collaborate on a live version of that song, put them both together. It's going to be great. I tell you, it's going to be great. <laughs> oh, that's a good idea. That's a good idea. 
I hope to hear okay, that. I'm one. gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna give you total credit when we do it. <laughs> awesome. Cheryl Crow, this has been so much fun. Thank you so much for uh for talking with me again today, especially in uh, in and about all the old uh, stuff, but especially about the new stuff too. Well thank you. Thanks for having me. Good to see you. Yeah, and uh I'll look forward to, to hearing to all the new singles. Yeah. Okay, awesome. Yeah, I hope you like them. All right. Have a great one. Take care. All right. Take care. All, all right. right. Bye. You too. Bye. And for the last stop on the tour here, this one uh, I think is our original interview together. 2017, uh, Cheryl Crow and I got to talk about her 10th studio album, Be Myself. Uh, it was billed as her return to classic mid to late 90s sound. We discussed the record and the stories behind it. So here it is, uh, part five, Kyle Meredith with Cheryl Crow. So I've listened to the record about, I don't know, two dozen times right now. Oh my gosh, And you've a got lot. a, well... It's a good record. Thank you've you. done a great record. Thank you. I'm and I don't, super proud of it. Yeah, I don't know that you've done a bad record. Well, I've made some that were not as um, perhaps as accessible or tolerable as others. <laughs> but this one I'm really proud of. I actually really like this record. It feels like my second record and my third record. Uh, feels like early days. Yeah. When did you know? I want, I want to go back. I want to start with the last record, though. You know, that was the, the Nashville record, the country mm -hmm. album, whatever you want to. Uh, did you always know that was going to be a one-off? Or was there a point where you said, I've done that. I don't need to do that again. It's not going to be a follow-up to that. Well, um, you know what didn't suit me more than anything was the format, the country format. I had, I had thought just from listening to the radio that probably the kind of music that I make was better suited for, uh, instead of a pop audience, for a mainstream audience, which mm -hmm. is what country music generally seems to um, attract. But I realize that that format is constructed so differently than what I'm used to at old school, triple A, pop, rock And it's radio. a different world. It's a different world. Um, they expect a lot of the artists there. You have to be accessible 24 I mean, radio programmers have your phone number and text you and... I'm just not that person. <laughs> um, I spent a lot of time doing free gigs um, in hopes that they would play me between 3 and 4 a.m. Mm -hmm. So it just it just didn't feel right for me. So no matter what kind of record I made, that format was not going to be one I could succeed at because mm -hmm. I couldn't do – I couldn't be accessible like that. It's just I got kids. I have a life. I didn't want to be. Right. So. so that's when you get into this record. I, I mean – I know how the press takes a hook, and you know every album seems to. You've got to have that press story and everything. But you do the Rolling Stone interview, and they're saying like, "Oh, this is her return to the roots. This is her mm. '90s record again." And mm. I'd like to say ahead of time that I guess I don't see that. Oh. I know you go back with an old producer, and you go back to something that's comfortable. Yeah. But I didn't hear it that way. I heard this. I mean, you've got it. What's the um, What's the title of the record? Be it's myself. Be myself. Mm -hmm. Like that is really what this to me is more about it's a it, because you have the albums where okay i'm gonna make the country album i'm gonna make the memphis record like mm -hmm. everything seems to have a theme that you're driving towards and i don't know if you mm -hmm. go into those records calling it that yeah but no usually it's a the record making process for me is kind of unknown and then by the end of it i feel like where i wind up with all the songs leads me to the title and um, I had loved the music coming out of Memphis and I, uh, you know, grew up very near there and wanted to make that kind of record, but didn't really know exactly what it was going to be. So a lot of, I had a lot of different records that have been kind of explorations of musical influences, but this record, my objective for it was just to go in and have a really fun time like the old days where 
the studio was just like a laboratory slash sanctuary where the outside world, you know, was was subjected to being outside the locked door. And um, Jeff and I, my old songwriting buddy, who he and I wrote "Soak Up the Sun" and all, and uh, "If It Makes You Happy" and "Every Day Is a Winding Road" and "Favorite Mistake." That it would just feel like the old days where we went in and he had a guitar and I had a bass and we threw up a drum groove and wrote a bunch of songs. And that's really, um, that's how we made the old records and it's how we made this one. And that's it. It sounds really natural. And I guess yeah. that's what I'm getting to. It doesn't mm-hmm. seem like you're trying to get back no, to a previous decade. All. Which, uh, of any art form, I mean, music is the only one that really, you can be a time traveler. Mm-hmm. You know, songs are the way to time travel. I think artists typically try not to repeat themselves. Uh, they try not to get stuck in a rut. And as a writer, as a performer, as a producer, I've always tried to keep growing. Um, but this one was more conscientiously, let's let's go back to the way we used to make our records, mm. which was just Jeff and I and either a drummer or a drum groove. And demo it, you know, demo the songs, and then the demos were what went up on the records. Yeah. And I guess that also explains, because there is a lot of references in there, uh, Beyond Be Myself, uh, mm-hmm. Long Way Home, you know, it's, and that's what I didn't know, like, what exactly is home? Is it what you're talking about, just getting back to that easy songwriting, or is there something completely different when that's specific? Yeah, that song, um, Long Way Home, is really about the journey that brings you to the moment of now. And I have been all over the world, and I've had an extremely full life. Um, I've had cancer, I've adopted kids, I've had numerous wonderful, intense relationships, some that ended poorly and some that ended great but didn't last. Um, and very public. And very public. Yeah, I mean, I've I've lived nine lives and and my life has never been better than it is right now. And that's, I guess, ultimately, it's... It's what you go through to get to this moment that uh, is what that, that this song is about. I mean, how is it working for you then? Are you still writing as much? Were there lots more songs beyond this? Because this record does sound so natural and almost like these songs were hand-selected because they yeah. fit each other so well. There were a few songs left over, and we we I know they're using them for something. I don't know, but... Um... It was an easy record to make. I mean, granted, there were just, gosh, so many things to write about, you know. Um, Creativity for me now exists between school drop-off and dinner time. So that is basically how we worked. I dropped the kids off at school, went down to the barn, which is right at the, down my driveway. And uh, we would work until, I'd pick up the kids at three and bring them back and they would play in the barn and then we'd walk up the hill and eat dinner at six, and that was it. And it was great. It was very civilized, but none, nonetheless inspired. Yeah. I mean, like, I don't know. You, I hear songwriters all the time talking about, you know, where the song just kind of arrives out of the ether, but it almost mm-hmm. sounds like with this, it's, you know, the, the punch in the clock, if it's not there, you know, is, is it harder that, like, you've got to chisel a bit more? I don't know. It's... Yeah. Well, in the old days, I would go in with absolutely no ideas, and it would take months to make a record, and it would just be like gnashing of teeth and banging, banging my head. And this one wasn't like that. I think mainly because I, I hadn't worked with Jeff in a while, and we just fell into this thing that we always had. But the lyrics for me, I just felt like there were so many things to talk about. Um, and I wasn't even conscious about, okay, I'm going to write a song about this, I'm going to write a song about that. You know, I, I said earlier, earlier I kind of barfed them out but it was kind of like that it was just like venting kind of yeah and you can hear that too because there's several themes going on uh lyrically that Mm -hmm. you're talking about in this I started looking at some of these songs and then some of your back catalog and I found that you have this favorite thing to write about 
that seems like it's how you relate to others. Not that you're so much an outsider, mm-hmm. but there's sort of an opposition like, I don't know, that you feel like you don't fit in or something mm-hmm. because, you know, you call out the hipsters and the indie bands yeah. in this. I, I mean, is that accurate? Is that part yeah, of it? Yeah, you know, that goes all the way back to when I was a kid. I was always on the periphery of all the, you know, of the cool group. Um, I was always on the periphery of the great musicians. You know, I was never quite there. Mm-hmm. Wasn't like one of the cool kids or wasn't the best musician or the best singer. And um, But I also think there's a certain element to that that exists in everyone where you feel like you're not fully one of something Mm -hmm. you know and I also think that's a byproduct of being a songwriter or maybe being a songwriter is a byproduct of that that you feel like an outsider and you have something to say in in the way of commentary or observation well how does it work for you I mean do you because when you came out Mm -hmm. I mean what year was Tuesday night that was 94 yeah 93 94 Mm -hmm. I thought there's a complete different musical landscape as to what was popular. Yeah. Like you weren't playing what was popular. No, which was one of the reasons it was shocking that it did as well as it did because it just didn't sound like anything else. Right. Do you find trouble relating to whatever's going on right now? I mean, again, you dabble Mm -hmm. in the country world and country, hot country is one of the biggest genres sales-wise out there. But, you know, as you're talking about all the indie bands out there, I mean, do you find yourself, do do you know where you are in the musical landscape? Well, I don't know if I exist in the musical landscape anymore because I'm, uh, you know, I mean, hey, I'm an elder statesman, <laughs> as I like to say. Yeah. I'm a seasoned artist. Um, a lot of what's at radio that we listen to on the way to school is, you know, it's really geared towards young kids mm-hmm. between, what do they say, the demographic is 13 to 26 or whatever. <laughs> I don't know me. that I'm going to find a home there. Yeah. Uh, the country format I found was... Um, it's all male singers with the exception of maybe one or two women. And it's all about hot chicks in tight jeans. And, uh, you know, so I knew I didn't fit in there. And um, But there is a great world of music that exists, like in Triple A, um, bands like Head in the Heart, Nikki Lane, Lake Street Dive. Yep. I mean, there's just, there's a, a lot of, I'm constantly shazamming our local Triple A and finding awesome new music. So hopefully, you know, I'll find my own home there. You yeah. never know. And one of our biggest artists on the format, Gary Clark Jr. Gary Clark Jr. Who ends up on your record. He's on my record. How He's did that happen? same manager as me. Ah. Yeah. That's convenient. Yeah. I've known him <laughs> since, you know, the beginning. And a great kid, but also just a great hope in the way of, of um, music, mm-hmm. I think. How did he end up on? I mean, beyond that, is it just making the him. call? and? Yeah. I actually texted him and said, hey... Um, would you play on something? He's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. We've done stuff together mm-hmm. live, so, um, and I sent it to him. Yeah. yeah. And it's just the one song? Yeah. He, and he sent me a bunch of options. I was like, no, don't <laughs> make me choose. You can totally hear him on there. I mean, that tone, you know, he has crafted that out he's so well masterful. for himself. Yeah. He's He's really great. And he's the real deal. I really, really am a fan. Yeah. Have you got anybody else on the record? I guess not noteworthy on this one. that I would, yeah. No, not on this one. I mean, I've got a lot of great players. I haven't Fred seen Altrin the liner and. Um, my drummer's on it, Fred Eltringham, and Josh Grange plays pedal steel and some, uh, I think he mainly plays that. Um, that's about it. Yeah. yeah. Mostly just me and Jeff. <laughs> and again, it sounds so full, but I guess yeah. that's maybe why it sounds so, I don't know, it, it, it is one complete sound over the whole thing. There, I mean, there's a few different things going on, but it works as an album. It's not a collection of singles. That's what I'm trying to get yeah. at, you know, that works. And I, I will say there is my favorite song in here, um, Love Will Save the Day. Aww. Is that the name of it? 
Yes, yeah. and actually that was that was an emotional um, afternoon for for both Jeff and I because Jeff had just moved to town just a few months before, and he's got a teenage boy and then a grade school grade school boy, and they were getting acclimated to starting school, new place, and then a friend of mine or sort of a peripheral friend of all of ours, her son who was fourteen, committed suicide at uh, one of the you know Brentwood Academy. Just a you know good family. And it just struck all of us that it's just a hard, it's a hard time in our evolution as people to be able to hold the chaos that is around us. But for kids, you know, for children, um, sometimes it's just not holdable, Mm -hmm. you know. And uh, so that's what the song is about. It's just really a song of hopeful, uh, hopefully encouragement and, you know, just the promise of of being loved and Mm -hmm. held. I think we've all known someone or, or a family that's gone through that, and you just want to shake those kids and say, you're so young, I know. and it all changes, and all know, of this and goes away. sometimes for kids, they, they just can't handle it. The yeah. pressures and with social media and all that goes on around them in their own homes, it's, you know, it's hard. Yeah. It's hard to grow up. Well, it, it did unfortunately, I guess, bittersweetly make for this beautiful song that almost seems like the centerpiece of the record. I mean, there's the placement right there in the middle, too, but yeah. it, it all, to me, builds up to that, and it just rips your heart out. Mm. And then here's side two. Yeah. You know. Yeah, yeah. If it was an album, that's where it would be. The, it. the needle would come up after that one. <laughs> Next song on the list, though, Heartbeat Away. Mm-hmm. If there is something of you reclaiming some growl from, you know, if it makes you happy, like oh, hearing yeah. the your your fiery passion come out in that song. Yeah, that was kind of a funny song because, um, I mean, we didn't set out to write like the epic Give Me Shelter cousin. Mm-hmm. It, we were we were writing and recording uh, during the election cycle, actually, even before, I think even before the uh, candidates had before Donald Trump had gotten the um, nomination and before uh, Hillary had gotten it. And that song, it started out with this kind of sinister sounding groove and bass line. And I just started writing this kind of um, espionage song about the corruption that exists under our noses that we don't, we're not even aware of. Mm-hmm. Um, and even Russia entered into the picture and it was before anything came out about Russia. Which is and the amazing. Election. Was, that you were able to very call eerie, that, right? Super eerie. Yeah. So I listened to it, and people will think that that was written after President Trump was elected, but it wasn't. It was written well before any rumblings of Russia interfering with our election, before that ever came about. And that's the line. I mean, the heartbeat away. That's what you usually say about the vice president, like whoever that guy is, yeah. is the heartbeat away. But you, yeah. you've tied that in where. I mean, obviously, calling out you know, the president and calling out Russia, it's sort of like, okay, this is probably the political song. But I don't know, the way the poetry goes, it's like it's almost also a love song. Yeah, and also that everything you need to know is just a heartbeat away, yeah. you know, if you look closely. So it's, yeah, it's, you know, art is a cool thing. Mm-hmm. You know, if you can tap into something that's just in the ether, you have to consider yourself super lucky. It doesn't happen that often. Yeah. And by no means is this the first time you've tried this because, you know, you had to sing or the, the song uh, Woman in the White House. Right. Which was a really cool song. And everyone will usually in the bios bring up, you know, guns and Walmarts. You right. Know, this is, yeah. But when you're going after this, I mean, you write great political songs. You want to write the political songs? As I see it, you're liberal in Nashville. Mm-hmm. You know, it's... I don't know. It's not... I mean, I don't set out to write 
songs that will piss off the conservative <laughs> right. But I can't, I mean, there it would be no way I could edit myself or I wouldn't censor. Censor, right. Yeah, I wouldn't censor myself. And there was just, I don't know, it was so prevalent, the fact that people were so vitriolic during this election cycle, so much so that I started a petition to try to limit limit the election cycle through change.org. I, you know, I was very verbal about it. And I, I still stand behind that. I think that when it gets to be that length, the only people that benefit from an election cycle that long are advertisers, uh, TV news outlets. But it just was, we were swimming in it. And so it would have been really hard for me to just ignore that and not write about it or to even try to keep it from having a presence on the record. You see the debate going back and forth sometimes. And I love it when an artist uses their platform. for. The, do you think it's an artist's job to... Maybe not take a side, but and, and even just make sure you're reflecting what's going on out there. Yeah, I don't think it's my job to do it. Well, I'm, you know, that's not exactly responsibility. True. That's I not don't even. Know, you know. know what? I will say. I think art is what catalogs us or documents our evolution throughout time. You know, you can go all the way back to sixteen, seventeen hundreds, and classical music defined a period of romantic. Uh, songwriting um, from the Romance period, paintings, writings, uh, Hemingway, F. Scott Fitzgerald. You can go back and look at who we were as a people by looking at our art, all the way back to hieroglyphics. And although I don't consider it my responsibility, I do think that what art does is give a voice to the collective conscious, conscience and um, a lot of what's out there is definitely representative of where we are right now, for better or for worse. The shrinking of the attention span being down to six seconds and having to put a hook in every six seconds. And, you know, according to what makes a great pop song, you know, everything really does reveal who we are at a moment in our in time. And I, I want to write songs that I feel like are, you know, that speak to us and about us because that's what music does you know it changes the molecules in all of us and if you're having an experience where you are listening to something and you feel like it's resonating in you that's what it does yeah and at the same time you've also or you're going to write about your personal life and 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 the romance that's unavoidable. And the love songs that's and... <laughs> unavoidable yes and, you know and, and try to throw it into one big old pot and see yeah, what kind of stew you know, is made your life informs your art and your perception is completely formed by your life experiences, so you can't avoid it. Yeah, yeah. I'd be curious what I'm missing here. You know, when we first started this conversation, you, you kind of half-jokingly said that there's a lot to say about this record. Like, what is there that you're, you're needing to say about this record beyond... That it's awesome and people should go out and download it or buy it or whatever it is people do now. I feel like I just threw now, out a low-hanging fruit question exactly. there. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Well, one of the themes that runs all the way through the record is the presence of technology and what's that what what that's doing to our relationships with others you know it connects us and yet it is also creating a chasm between us um, it's giving us the unadulterated right to speak our minds in a really super ugly way anonymously but it's also giving us the ability to support each other there's a song on there called be myself which mm -hmm. is the title track and it you know i think the objective of that song ultimately wound up being about my relationship with my kids and, and trying to figure out a way to help them understand that likes and dislikes on Instagrams or Facebook or whatever does not, does not dictate whether you are popular or good. Mm -hmm. 
And that's where we're at right now. I, I can't imagine being a kid growing up with all this technology that is supposed to be telling you about you and who you are to yourself. Yeah. And you get that in roller skating, too, which is a great line in yeah, there. Yeah, put, put your put phone it... away, let's roller skate. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's the other thing. My kids all the time, Mom, put your phone away. <laughs> and you're never going to look back and think, oh, I wish I would have spent more time on my phone. No. You know. No, it's crazy. And that was a sort of a fun point to listen to in the record because – I don't know. In a way, you're sort of time stamping some of these songs because you're mentioning Instagram and you're mm-hmm. mentioning Twitter. And uh, I don't know. I, I can't name a song that actually said the word MySpace or something in it, but I'm sure when you hear that now, it's going to be a giggle. Yeah. And in 15 years, hopefully, you know, this vision that you're wanting of the future comes true because I think we all need to get to that point that, you yeah. can, that you'll be able to look back and be like, that's silly. And that's what it does. Art basically documents a moment in time, yeah. you know? Yeah. It does. Well, it's a great record. Uh, I love it, and it's another one in your fine catalog of many, oh, many great records. Well, thank so. you. And Kyle, um, people in Radio Land probably do not know that you and I are sitting in my hotel room. Yeah. So it's it's clean. It's very clean. I know. Yeah. You know. My hotel room is not this clean. Although, if you look around closely, there's like little boy underwear and PJs over there, and you know. You've got your stowaways too. Real. Yeah, my son. I, I he does the thing. He sneaks the uh, the doll into my suitcase, and so oh, when yeah, I open we, up, that's yeah, Ducky and Piggy. Yeah. over there. They get. They've been all over the world. <laughs> awesome. Yes. Thank you so much. All right. Good to talk to you. You too. And my thanks to Cheryl Crow. The documentary Cheryl is now streaming online. Big thanks to Cheryl. Big thanks to you for checking out the episode. Uh, I do hope you hit the subscribe button before you get out of here. Uh, again, new episodes every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at all the usual spots that you can uh, grab your podcast. That does include uh, YouTube for the video versions as well. After that, head over to WFPK.org. Right to a show Monday through Friday, 6 p.m. Eastern. It's an hour full of song premieres, music news, anniversary spins, and bonus interviews. That's Monday through Friday, 6 p.m. Eastern at WFPK.org. Consequence has your music and film news. You can also find me on the social media spots, uh, mostly, mostly on Twitter, but also Instagram and Facebook, all three of them, at Kyle Meredith. I do hope you like and follow along. That does it for another edition. I'm Kyle Meredith. I'll see you next time. Consequence Podcast Network. Mr. Big. Yeah, I used to know the guitar player in that band. It's easy to hear your favorite artist on WFPK from wherever you are. Listen on your smart speaker, live stream from our website at WFPK.org from Louisville Public Media. Save big money when you start your next project today at Menards. Check out our great selection of garage and utility lighting options in stock, ready to take home today. We carry everything to help you illuminate whatever project you're working on. Shop garage and utility lighting products in store at your nearest Menards. You can also view all of our entire selection of lighting options today on Menards.com. Save big